Let's pray once more. Lord, in your word, you declare that all flesh is grass and its beauty as the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but your word stands forever. And it is true, Lord, your word has stood hundreds, thousands of years before any of us drew our first breath. Your word stood during World War I, during the French Revolution, during the foundation of the civilization of Greece, Rome. Lord, your word stands forever and it will stand even after we are gone. I pray, Lord, that this morning you would give us ears to hear your word and not only hear it, but to obey it, to be doers of your word as we go forth from this place. Would you come now, Lord, and do your redemptive surgery on us and prepare us, Lord, for this coming week. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Once upon a time, there were two ducks and a frog who lived together in a pond. But the pond began to dry up and all three of them knew that they would have to move. The two ducks knew that they could easily fly to a new location and so the two of them came up with a plan to bring the frog with them. They'd put a stick between their two bills and they would carefully fly with one another with the frog hanging onto the new stick, onto the stick. And they'd get to their new location that way, the three of them. Well, the trip got underway and the three of them were traveling along way up in the sky. A farmer looked up from his field and saw them and, and said, wow, what a clever idea. I wonder who thought of it. And the frog said, I did. And the frog then learned the hard way that pride goes before a fall. Well, Daniel chapter four, friends, is a chapter, a passage about the pride of King Nebuchadnezzar, his fall and his restoration. It's a passage that stresses that the only truly the one who is only and truly worthy, I should say, of the title great is who? God. Now, none of us should distance ourselves too much from proud Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. After all, pride is something that affects us all, like an acid. Pride, says Cornelius Plantinga, is a blend, listen to this, pride is a blend of self-absorption or narcissism with an overestimation of our abilities. A blend of self-absorption, narcissism with an overestimation of our abilities. Pride is, a, is, is this, it's thinking a lot about ourselves and thinking a lot of ourselves. Pride makes the self the focus of all the credit, and it relegates God to the sidelines. 
And according to James 4, verse 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, one of the many interesting things about this fourth chapter of Daniel is that a large portion of it is Nebuchadnezzar's own first-person testimony. Now, that's an interesting thing, that God, in this part of his word, allows a pagan, non-Israelite king to share a lengthy testimony. After which, Nebuchadnezzar will simply bow out of the story. And concerning his testimony, it begins at the final destination of where God brought him. We need to see this, the conclusion that Nebuchadnezzar arrived at in his journey is given first before the details of how he arrived at that conclusion are given. So we start here, we need to notice this, we start at the arrival point of Nebuchadnezzar's story. Verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. So Nebuchadnezzar is talking. Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar begins his testimony by twice mentioning, notice, the signs and wonders that Israel's God had done for him. Now, in the days of the exodus out of Egypt, God had said in Exodus 7, verse 5, that when he stretched his hand out against Egypt with all those signs and wonders that he would do, all those plagues, then Egypt would know that he was the Lord. And it seems here in this first part of Daniel 4 that something similar had happened for Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. God had shown this king signs and wonders like at the fiery furnace. And now he's testifying to the greatness of Israel's God. As we said, the arrival point of Nebuchadnezzar's testimony, the destination of the whole thing is here off the top at the end of verse three. What did Nebuchadnezzar finally come to realize in the end? He came to realize that God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. This was the grand truth. This was the great life lesson that Nebuchadnezzar finally learned. But how did he reach this conclusion? How did he arrive there? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 4, here begins his autobiographical details. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Now, so far in the story of Daniel, if you've been with us, we've seen Nebuchadnezzar furiously angry at times. We've seen him shocked and startled at other times. Now he's at ease, chilling out, prospering. 
it's getting kind of hard to keep track of his emotional life, isn't it? Verse five, I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. Nebuchadnezzar had had that dream of the statue and the stone, remember, in chapter two, but in this fourth chapter, he's going to describe a different dream. In his fear and in his alarm over this new dream, Nebuchadnezzar does again what he had done before. He summons his Babylonian counselors. Remember those guys? He summons the Babylonian counselors for the interpretation of the dream. Verse six, so I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, here we go again, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Well, old habits die hard, I guess. We wonder, why not just go straight to Daniel, since Daniel had been the only successful interpreter of the Daniel 2 dream? We're not sure. Verse 7, then the magicians, the enchanters, the, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. Well, big surprise. And now those Babylonian counselors simply make a quick exit from the story altogether. They leave. Verses 8 and 9. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar continues, At last, who came in before me? Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. And then Nebuchadnezzar does what he didn't do before. He tells Daniel the content of his dream beginning at verse 10. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold, what? A great tree, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven. And it was visible to the end of the, of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. Now, friends, we need to see there's some trouble in these verses. Notice carefully that Nebuchadnezzar, what's he doing? He's lingering over the details of this tree that he saw in his dream. His focus in these verses are... It's on the tree that he saw with its height, with its strength, with its beauty, its fruitfulness, its purpose. And we can't help but recall here an earlier story in scripture where someone's eyes were focused intently on a tree. Genesis 3, verse six. In the Garden of Eden, Eve, listen to the words, saw, 
she's focused, saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Adam and Eve desired to be like God. And so catastrophically, they ate from the tree. Nebuchadnezzar has also shown that he thinks of himself as divine. And as we're about to find out, this tree in his dream is him and his kingdom. And it gets chopped down. But there's still another echo here of Genesis in these verses. Nebuchadnezzar says of the tree in his dream, its top reached to heaven. Where have we heard that before? Well, in Genesis 11, as the builders of the Tower of Babel are laying out their blueprints, they say that, ah, this, ta this tower we're building, its top will reach the heavens. And God did what? He put an end to that building project in Genesis 11 that was designed to reach to the heavens. And here in Daniel 4, he chops down the lofty, heaven-reaching tree that is Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. Now, we need to understand that the way this tree is described here in verses 10 through 12 is a direct reflection of how Nebuchadnezzar thought of himself. The tree was great and strong. Well, Nebuchadnezzar believed that he was great and strong. The tree was lofty, reaching the heavens. That's how Nebuchadnezzar perceived himself, as high above all. The tree was characterized by beauty and abundance, and it was the source of shade and food for all flesh. Nebuchadnezzar thought of himself as the beautiful provider of nourishment for the whole earth. My friends, it is in us as human beings, it's in us to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Well, just as God had come down Genesis 11:7. he had come down to deal with the arrogance of the tower builders. So now in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, God sent down an angel, a watcher, to go and talk facts with Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar says, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Basically obliterate the tree. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but... Leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven, 
Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. So the divine lumberjack would come and he would chop down this great tree that is proud Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. Now notice something interesting here, friends. Notice in these verses how the pronouns change. Notice this. So throughout verse 14, half of verse 15, we have repeated uses of it and its, referring to the tree, its branches, its leaves, its fruit, its roots, etc. But then suddenly, in the second half of verse 15, things change from its to him and his. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. To quote Walter Kaiser, this change of pronoun signals, he says, that the tree is figurative and the message is aimed at a man, or as it turns out, against Nebuchadnezzar himself. Yes, the tree in Nebuchadnezzar's dream is Nebuchadnezzar himself. And verse 15 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar's stump, notice, is to be bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Well, this proud king will find himself very soon bound like a captive in an insanity that will have him eating grass. Verse 16, the speech of this heavenly watcher continues, let his mind be changed from a man's, notice, and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. I think it's fair to say, friends, things were not looking good for proud Nebuchadnezzar. God would visit Nebuchadnezzar's pride by literally changing Nebuchadnezzar's mind, but not for the better. And this new state of mind would persist in Nebuchadnezzar for seven periods of time. In other words, for a complete time of God's choosing. Verse 17 starts with judicial language. The sentence, notice, judicial language, is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy, one, holy ones, to the end, notice, to the end, that the living may know, what? That the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Now, don't miss this here, friends, that we have the purpose statement of this exercise of God chopping proud Nebuchadnezzar down and causing his temporary insanity. The purpose statement. God will do this to the end or for the purpose that the living, who's the living? That's each and every one of us. That the living may know what? That the most high rules the kingdom of men. Not Nebuchadnezzar, not Joe Biden, 
not Netanyahu or Hamas, not Putin or Jinping or Trudeau or me or you or anyone else. The truth of the word of God is right here. The most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. See, friends, it's not just that God rules heaven, which he does. It's that right now, my friends, right now, on October 22nd, 2023, right now, despite appearances, he rules the whole kingdom of men on earth, and he is working things out on earth that, quite frankly, escape our comprehension. God is sovereign, we need to understand. God is king. Has that ever changed? No. Will that ever change? No. And so Dale Davis very wisely, I think, reminds us that we must not be overly impressed by human governments, nor awed by human rulers. He says this, human governments are interim arrangements that God appoints to fill space until the power and glory of Jesus' kingdom. Human rulers, he says, human rulers, tyrannical or democratic, are God's lackeys who only have tenure at his pleasure. Well, in his testimony, Nebuchadnezzar just described his dream to Daniel. And you would think that Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian counselors, he's got all these guys, you'd think that they would have at least some inkling of what the dream meant. But no. <laughs> Things get handed over to Daniel. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, a.k.a. Daniel, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom, if you can believe it, are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Now, it's at this point in the narrative, if you have your Bible open, you see this, it's at this point that Nebuchadnezzar's first-person testimony breaks off. And the narrator of Daniel now enters to take over. It's almost as if Nebuchadnezzar needs a little help uh, recounting the details of his story. So the narrator now obliges, takes over, and starts talking in verse 19. Then Daniel, the narrator speaking, then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while. And his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, the king's looking at Daniel and seeing him like troubled, right? The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, my lord, May the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Now, friends, Daniel knows precisely what the dream means. Daniel knows that the proud tree is Nebuchadnezzar, 
and he knows that God is the lumberjack who will cut down this proud tree and who will cause Nebuchadnezzar to behave in madness like an animal. Nebuchadnezzar is the one, we have to remember this at this point, Nebuchadnezzar is the one who had captured Daniel back in Judah, right? Kidnapped him out of his homeland. Nebuchadnezzar is the one who had looted the temple, who had deported many of Daniel's countrymen. And so you would think, wouldn't you, that Daniel here in this moment would be happy. He knows the interpretation of the dream. You'd think he would be thinking, finally, Nebuchadnezzar is getting what he deserves. Finally, revenge on Nebuchadnezzar is coming. He's going to be chopped down. And revenge is sweet. But Daniel does not behave that way. We need to see this, friends. Like his God, Daniel takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. Daniel is troubled here. He doesn't even want to tell Nebuchadnezzar what the dream means. Daniel is godly, and he is hesitant here. But then he plunges in with the interpretation. The tree you saw, king, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Now we're reminded here a little bit, aren't we, of the prophet Nathan, who had come around and said to David, you are the man. You are the man in my devastating parable, David. <laughs> Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, you are the man who is the chopped down tree in this dream. And Daniel continues, your greatness, Nebuchadnezzar, has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, it is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon who? My Lord, the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till what? Till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. 
The lesson that proud Nebuchadnezzar had to learn the hard way and that each and every one of us needs to learn in this life is right there at the end of verse 26. And it was also in verse 25. The lesson for us human creatures, no matter who we are on the earth, is that heaven rules. And that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. It's exactly the same lesson that had come from the mouth of the watcher back in verse 17. The unvarnished lesson here, friends, can be summarized like this. That God is in charge of his world and we are not. Now, I would suspect that poor old Nebuchadnezzar was shell-shocked at this point. I think it's fair to say Daniel had just faithfully given the interpretation of the dream, and the basic message to Nebuchadnezzar was that he'd end up living with animals in some field, eating grass as a chopped-down tree. I think what Nebuchadnezzar needed at this moment was just to go outside and get some air, maybe clear his head, or perhaps a cold shower would have done him some good. But instead, notice Daniel keeps talking <laughs> in verse 27. Now Daniel decides to give Nebuchadnezzar some unsolicited advice, notice. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. In other words, here's a little friendly advice. Break off your sins. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Now, I think Daniel sounds an awful like, a lot like the Apostle Paul here. In Acts 26, verse 20, where Paul says that his message to every audience was that they should repent and turn to God and perform deeds in keeping with their repentance. Daniel counsels King Nebuchadnezzar to break it off with his sins, end the relationship with his sins, show that by living differently. And living differently for Nebuchadnezzar is going to include changing his state policy. No more iron fist on the oppressed, Nebuchadnezzar. No more exploiting people in the service of your proud interests, Nebuchadnezzar. Instead, exercise mercy. What a novel idea. And practice righteousness like a proper king should. And if you can manage that, Daniel says, well, then there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. A ray of hope for old Nebuchadnezzar here. If he responded in humility to the God-given dream and its interpretation, then things might go well for him. A ray of hope. Well, what happened? How did Nebuchadnezzar respond? Did Nebuchadnezzar end up repenting? on the spot? Did he change? Did he delete those oppressive state policies? Did he learn his lesson and take on humility? Tune in next week. No. <laughs> I'm going to go there. Notice, friends, verses 28 and 29. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, 
At the end of how long? 12 months. How long is 12 months? One year. A year passes. A whole year passes. God in his forbearance, God in his mercy, gave Nebuchadnezzar a year to respond. As Chris Wright put it, God took no pleasure in reducing a human being made in God's image to the level of a brute beast. He says, God wants humility, not humiliation. At the end of 12 months, what happened? He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is this not great Babylon? which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty. Oh boy. After a whole year, Nebuchadnezzar remains fascinated with himself and his glory. There is zero mention here, notice, in what he says, zero mention of God. Nebuchadnezzar looked out upon Babylon. What did he see? He saw the hanging gardens that he had made for his wife. He saw the 53 temples that he had either built himself or renovated. He saw the formidable double-walled security system, so wide were these walls that chariots could be driven on top of them. He saw the great bridge that connected east and west across the Euphrates River. He saw the Ishtar Gate towering 47 feet in the air. He saw a processional street over 60 feet wide paved with imported limestone. He saw the three palaces that were constructed for his personal use. He saw the seven-level ziggurat tower, 288 feet high. He saw all the artistic renderings of lions and dragons that were scattered throughout and across Babylon. And he said, I have done it. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built with my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? Well, what about us, friends? Is this not my great business, which I have built with my ability and with my smarts? Is this not my great academic achievement, which I have managed on the strength of my intellect? Is this not my great family, which I have built with my superior parenting skills? You fill in the blank. Remember the frog on the stick whose pride caused him to fall? Well, Nebuchadnezzar's a lot like that frog. As soon as he says, I claim all the credit and glory for great Babylon, as soon as he says that, what happens? God swoops in with a devastating word. Verses 31 and 32, notice, while the words were still in the king's mouth, 
there fell a voice from heaven. Can't imagine what it sounded like. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know what? That the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. We keep hearing that throughout the chapter. It must be important. Nebuchadnezzar, because of his stubborn pride, friends, and his pretensions to divinity, because of the oppression that he had been oppressing the powerless with, because he still had not learned his lesson, is now stricken by God with a psychological disorder called boanthropy, where a person believes he is a cow or an ox and gets down on all fours to eat grass. It's an actual disorder. Verse 33. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. Immediately. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers. And his nails were like bird's claws. As Sinclair Ferguson has said, the one who refused to honor God's glory loses his own glory. Refusing to share what he had with the poor, he became poorer than the poor. He became outwardly what his heart had been inwardly, bestial. But the story doesn't end there, does it? God was not done with Nebuchadnezzar just yet. God, we need to understand, is merciful. Amen? God is merciful. Verses 34 and 35. Back to Nebuchadnezzar talking. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, did what? I lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I did what? Blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand and say to him, what have you done? You know, my friends, if you're ever looking for a definition of what sanity is, it's spelled out very clearly in verse 34. Nebuchadnezzar says that his reason returned to him, notice. That is, God gave him a sane mind again, and with sanity returned to him, what did he do? He blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. That is what sane people do with their lives. 
That is what sanity is, to look away from yourself and to worship the only true supreme ruler of the universe, God. That's what sanity does. We said at the beginning today that Nebuchadnezzar began his testimony at the end. In verse 3, he'd given the, the conclusion of his journey before he related the actual journey itself. In verse 3, the conclusion of his journey had been that God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. And now here at the very tail end of his testimony, verse 34, Nebuchadnezzar repeats the same conclusion. It's like two bookends in the chapter. God's dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. It does appear, friends, that Nebuchadnezzar has finally, under the hand of God, learned some things. And just as the Lord had restored the fortunes of Job after Job's suffering, so the Lord restored Nebuchadnezzar's fortunes after his suffering. Verse, uh, sorry, verse 36. At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. So he goes from the guttermost to the uttermost. And then the chapter concludes with verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, do what? Praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And notice at the end, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. The prodigal king came to his senses at last. Instead of ascribing glory to himself, now Nebuchadnezzar humbled ascribes glory to God. Pride has been described as the inordinate love of one's own excellence. The inordinate love of one's own excellence. Off the top today, we also quoted Cornelius Plantinga, who says that pride is thinking a lot about oneself and thinking a lot of oneself. Pride was at the very root of the first rebellion against God in the garden. And pride causes us to have a distorted view, not only of ourselves, but of others and of God. And it's a danger, as we said, that each and every one of us is prone to. And so in closing, as a remedy, what do we do? We fix our eyes on another king, get our eyes off Nebuchadnezzar, Fix our eyes on another king, the king of kings, Jesus Christ, who could have legitimately, legitimately looked out on all the universe with its planets and stars and oceans and mountains and forests and creatures, and he could have said, is this not the great universe which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. He could have rightfully done that. But Jesus didn't do that. In fact, he did the opposite. Scripture says he humbled himself. Though in the form of God, 
he made himself nothing. He humbled himself, my friends, to the point of death on the cross so that you and I could be rescued from our pride. And this morning we thank God for the lessons he teaches us, the warnings he gives us through the story of Nebuchadnezzar, but we thank God far more for the redemption and the rescue that he gives us through his humble son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that in many cases is like an uncomfortable mirror showing us our pride. And Lord, the joke's on us if we would hear this word and think someone else needs to hear this word. No, we need to hear this word. And I pray, Lord, as the redemptive physician that you would do your work in our hearts now and this week, causing us to look more and more and more like humble Jesus. I pray this for our sake, for your glory, and for the sake of your church. In Jesus' name, amen.